Welcome to Before the Ballot, a podcast series designed to educate voters before they cast their ballots this November. I'm your host, Elizabeth Donahue, and joining me today to discuss inequality as well as violence and criminal justice in the United States is Pat Sharkey. Pat is a professor of sociology and public affairs at Princeton. He received his PhD in sociology and social policy from Harvard. He served as the chair of sociology at New York University, as well as the scientific director at Crime Lab New York. He's also the founder of americaviolence.org. Welcome to the show, Pat. Thanks for having me, Elizabeth. It's been quite a last six months. We've seen um, killings of unarmed blacks at the hands of police. We've seen a disparate impact of COVID-19 on communities of color. And we've seen the resulting protests that have come out of these events as the country grapples with the truth of racial inequality and injustice in this country. I wondered if you could give us sort of the 30,000 foot view of this and tell us how we got to this point and then what you think some of the long lasting effects this point in our history might have. Yeah, there's a lot going on right now. And, and I do think all of the challenges that we're seeing right now and that the country is facing right now are related. Uh, they go back to the way that the U.S. has responded to the set of challenges and problems that really started to become very visible, particularly in central cities uh, in the 1960s. And those are challenges like racial injustice and joblessness and economic dislocation and pollution and climate change uh, and rising violence. All of these things kind of became very visible in the 1960s. And we as a nation set out on a path to respond to these challenges. And, but instead of doing it with investment and a movement for justice, uh, we responded with a policy agenda that was really focused on uh, abandonment, leaving communities on their own to deal with this rising set of challenges, and punishment, relying heavily on the police and the prison as the response to a whole bunch of challenges that come bundled up when cities are very unequal. Uh, and I think the consequences of that over time is that when you have a new crisis like uh, the coronavirus, it has a disproportionate impact on specific communities, most commonly low-income communities of color. When you have a crisis like police violence that we've seen, it again is concentrated in particular communities. So the challenges that the nation is dealing with right now are all related to each other and they are all go back to the way that we res have responded over time to the overarching challenge of extreme inequality. So you mentioned cities in particular. Um, I wonder if you could talk about cities that have certainly been highlighted in the news in terms of urban living and sort of what the trajectory of cities has been in terms of uh, families becoming entrenched in some of these poor neighborhoods and the effect that has on both the families as well as sort of urban life. A lot of my research has focused on the consequences of living in advantaged and disadvantaged neighborhoods. And what I've found is that the consequences are real. So we have very strong causal evidence on the impact of growing up in a very disadvantaged neighborhood. 
uh, and the consequences are cumulative, meaning that the effects of living in a disadvantaged environment don't go away when a child reaches teenage years or, or adulthood. Uh, the, the impact of the neighborhood environment affects the schooling experience, affects how far a child goes uh, in school. It affects cognitive development. It affects uh, the early entrance into the labor market. It affects income early uh, in life, early in adulthood. It affects the, the issues like mental health uh, in early adulthood. So through these and a whole bunch of other pathways, the impact of the childhood environment then extends into adulthood and thereby extends to the next generation. So a lot of the research that I have done shows that, you know, if we look around the country right now, we see areas of, of advantage and we also see areas of, of concentrated disadvantage. And that's important to focus on the people in those environments right now. But it's also important to recognize that what we see at this moment is a continuation of an experience that in most commonly in the U.S. has gone on for years and usually generations uh, so that the, the impacts of growing up in a disadvantaged environment extend all the way back to several decades ago and generations ago. And we're seeing the consequences of life in disadvantaged neighborhoods over multiple generations right now in terms of economic inequality, in terms of wealth gaps, uh, in, in terms of, of, of gaps in academic achievement and cognitive development. All of these impacts are cumulative and they extend across generations. And this is the real challenge of, of urban inequality in the U.S. is really thinking about the long-term impacts and, and how to create change that is transformative and that persists over time. Uh, so that's, that's the, the focus of a lot of the empirical work that I'm doing and also the policy work. So what's interesting, though, is that um, certainly while income inequality has grown over the last 25 years, I think you'd probably agree with that, um, violence in the cities has actually dropped and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that, because if you look at the news coverage today, you would think that violence is on the rise. Yeah, that is that is true. And, and, and Americans generally haven't been aware of the major changes that have taken place in violence. In fact, the major declines in violence uh, that have occurred in the vast majority of cities over the past 25 years or so. Um, so the reason I started doing work on violence is because I started with this question about uh, neighborhood advantage and disadvantage and the consequences that it has uh, for, for different dimensions of inequality in the U.S. Um, and the more work that I started to do to try to unpack, okay, what was actually happening? What was most important about a child's environment that seemed to have these long-lasting impacts uh, that extend into adulthood? Uh, the, the factor that kept showing up uh, in every analysis that I did uh, was violence, community violence. Okay. And so this not suggesting that this is the only, or even the central reason why, uh, uh, neighborhood poverty has such damaging consequences, but it is an extremely strong uh, factor that seems to disrupt successful development and really disrupt community life in general. Um, and so the more evidence I generated, the more I started to look at violence as kind of one of the core mechanisms that explains how urban inequality translates into economic and educational inequality and wealth inequality and so forth. Um, and so this works in a few different ways. Uh, one of the first studies I did was just to look at how 
children perform on tests of cognitive skills, if by pure chance they're given those tests just before or just after uh, some incident of extreme violence takes place near their home. And, and the results from that study showed that the children who are given a, a standard uh, test of cognitive skills just after a major incident of violence occurs near their home score substantially lower. It looks like they've missed about two years of schooling relative to children who otherwise look identical but are given the same test just before uh, the, that major incident of violence takes place. So this was kind of my first hint that violence might be a crucial mechanism here. And the more work that has been done taking a similar approach, trying to understand the causal impact of violence, the more damaging the, the consequences of violence look. So violence affects everyone throughout a community. It affects children's cognitive functioning. It affects their ability to focus on school. It affects their sleep patterns. So that's one mechanism where violence really has a, a substantial impact uh, on individuals. But then violence also disrupts community life. Okay, it makes it less likely that families will invest in a neighborhood, that businesses will set up shop in a neighborhood. And that means that economic opportunities start to dry up. Public, public life starts to dry up in a community. So that then affects the opportunities available to young people when they reach early adulthood and, and enter the labor force. Okay, so this is all a, a prelude to saying that I've, I've come to think, based on my research, that violence is really a fundamental dimension of, of city life and really the fundamental challenge uh, that cities face. Now, the good news is violence has plummeted over the past 25 years. And as violence has fallen, we have seen what happens to communities as they come back to life, as economic opportunities reemerge, as public life uh, returns to places. And, and the benefits are enormous. What's interesting is that the benefits uh, you know, we've seen like touristy places. We've seen what uh, how Central Park has transformed and Times Square in New York. These are like famous spots that have become a lot safer. But the greatest changes have taken place in the most disadvantaged neighborhoods. And the greatest benefits of the crime drop have actually been experienced by the most disadvantaged segments of the population. So this is a major change in city life that I think is not widely recognized. I think you've called the drop in violence one of the most single public health victories in recent decades. And so it's so interesting that you tie those things together, because I think when people think of violence, they immediately go to the justice system versus a public health system, for example. Yeah, we often don't think about it as a public health issue. But, you know, the easiest way to make this point is just to look at lives lost. So as the murder rate has been cut roughly in half uh, from the early 1990s to the present. Um, this means tens of thousands of people are alive uh, who, who would have been murdered if we had seen no change uh, in violence over time. And so with a, a graduate student named Michael Friedson, um, who is now a, a professor out in Wisconsin, I've, I, we carried out a, a, a thought experiment where, where we um, mapped out life expectancy. Okay. So, so we looked at life expectancy in the U S over time. Uh, and then we carried out a calculation where, where we looked at, okay, what would life expectancy have looked like if the murder rate had never fallen? Okay. So if all of these people who live in, later into life, um, now, if the murder rate had never fallen, if their lives were cut short, what would life expectancy look like in the population? 
And for most groups, it, there's not a huge difference. Okay, murder is not a a uh, common cause of death for most segments of the population. But for black men in particular, uh, the drop in the murder rate has been probably the most important public health advancement in, in several decades. Uh, so the drop in the murder rate has has improved life expectancy of black men uh, by about four fifths of a year uh, from 1991 to the low point of of uh, violent crime in the U.S., which was 2014. And so that change it's kind of hard to put it into context, but that change is is greater than basically any change in society that has happened over the past several decades. It is extremely difficult to generate that large a shift in life expectancy um, uh, due to any one cause. And the example that I like to use is I compare it to the obesity epidemic in the U.S., which has received so much attention and so much funding uh, for research. Um, and, and looking at the research on obesity, uh, scholars who, who study the impact on life expectancy estimate that if obesity was eliminated tomorrow, meaning there was not a single person in the United States who was overweight, then life expectancy would probably increase by somewhere between a third of a year and a year. Okay, those are the rough estimates. So what we're showing in our analysis is that the actual change in mortality due to homicide from 1991 to 2014 was roughly equivalent, the impact on life expectancy for black men was roughly equivalent to the impact that one would expect if obesity was eliminated from the population altogether. This is a scale of change that we're talking about, and I think it's just helpful to put it into those terms because that's the reason why I talk about this as, as a just a breakthrough in public health, one of the most important advances in public health that's happened over the past few decades that, that very, few, very few people recognize and talk about. So I wonder if in your research, you've been able to identify policies that have been more successful in reducing violence and policies that have been much less successful. It's an important question. So we have, when we have discussions about how to reduce violence, the default in the U.S. has been to point to law enforcement and the prison system as the institutions that are responsible for dealing with this problem. Uh, the research that I've done suggests, A, you know, it, it, it is not unreasonable to think that the police can play a role in responding to violence. Uh, there's good evidence that police uh, expansion of police forces and changes in police tactics uh, did have an impact on violence um, from the 1990s forward. Uh, the problem is that that impact on violence came with staggering costs, okay? And the costs are, we see them right now, but the costs have come in the form of, of intensive surveillance, have come in the form of aggressive and sometimes violent policing. A thousand people are killed uh, by the police every year in the U.S. Um, and they've come in the, in the form of mass incarceration. And we're just starting to see the full toll of mass incarceration because it's not just the people who end up behind uh, prison bars who are affected. Uh, it, is, it is their family members, their friends, their significant others, their romantic partners, they, their children. Uh, and, and the true toll of mass incarceration is just become a, becoming apparent because we're seeing evidence on the consequences for the next generation. So the real challenge is how do we 
acknowledge the benefits that come when violence falls and how do we reduce violence further? How do we make sure every single neighborhood across the country gets to take part in this huge change in city life and to, and to experience a decline in violence? But how do we do it with a different model? How do we do it with a different set of actors and institutions that don't generate the same costs uh, that, that have been experienced disproportionately uh, in low-income communities of color, disproportionately by Black Americans in the U.S.? And so the research that I've done points to other actors and institutions that don't get credit for responding to violence, but in fact played a huge role in the drop in violence and can play a central role moving forward. In particular, what, what I found uh, in my research is that in the early 1990s, there was an explosion of local community organi organizations that are focused on responding to violence, but also building stronger neighborhoods by doing things like providing treatment for addiction, providing after-school programs, uh, retaking parks and playgrounds, marching against violence. So th this was a huge change that took place alongside the expansion of police forces and the continuing rise of incarceration. So could you put all this in, in the context of um, some of the calls of some of the recent protests to, to quote-unquote, defund the police? Sure, yeah. What I argue for is not a dramatic reduction of funding for the police at this moment, but rather an investment in alternative institutions, an investment in the kinds of organizations within communities that provide the foundation for community life and the kinds of organizations that can really respond to local problems and challenges in a way that is guided by the goal of building a stronger neighborhood and making sure everyone is safe in the community. And when we start to make those investments, then we're less dependent on the police uh, dominating uh, public spaces and communities. And we can start to think about alternative models for creating community safety. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about President Trump's approach to violence and um, what you think he would do if he won a second term and how Vice President Biden might approach it were he to win the election. It's an interesting question. So when President Trump was elected, I wrote a piece um, kind of laying out different scenarios for how uh, criminal justice and policing policy might play out. And, um, and, and the real question was, so at the time, there was a lot of momentum for, for uh, reforms to the criminal legal system and reforms to policing uh, that had widespread support really from uh, the left and the right. Uh, and, and, you know, the support on the right is driven by, uh, principles like, uh, from libertarians have argued against the heavy hand of the state. Evangelicals have argued for the idea of redemption to enter the, our, our criminal justice system. Uh, anti-tax reformers have argued this uh, system has become unwieldy and takes up a huge amount of, of funding uh, and represents a government overreach. You know, so there, there were these currents of thought really uh, from the right that joined with the longstanding criticism of the criminal legal system from the left. Uh, and, and really, it looked like substantial changes were on the horizon and then President Trump was elected and Jeff Sessions was appointed as attorney general. And a lot of that momentum evaporated. Uh, it evaporated into kind of the rhetoric of, of law and order, which began, you know, back in the 1960s, but which we're seeing again in, in this uh, campaign cycle. 
reemerge. And and so it was it was interesting interesting to see this trajectory because it was really like uh, at a moment where there was lots of mo- momentum for reform, there was a step backward in in terms of at least the rhetoric around criminal justice reform and policing reform. And then you had the first step act, and and the only way to describe this act in relation to the rhetoric is, is that they're incoherent. Uh, so the first step back is, is a, a small scale uh, set of changes to lighten sentencing uh, for low level offenses. It's not a major change in policy, but it's you know any any change that uh, is designed to scale back uh, the level of incarceration is important. So this is kind of an important piece of legislation. But then it comes hand in hand with rhetoric about the police need to take a more aggressive approach, suggesting a return to stop, question, and frisk as a a central policing tactic. Now you have um, Biden Biden and his agenda. This is a more extensive plan. It's a plan that really focuses on the ideal of justice. And so this is important. What I argue, however, is that a focus on justice without an equivalent focus on investment, probably insufficient. When I look at Biden's plan, um, it, it, it's very strong uh, on the focus on justice. It's less strong on the focus of investment. And on the justice side, it seems, and perhaps this has been overstated in the reporting, but it seems like we have a natural experiment going on where low-level offenders were released from jail due to the COVID-19 threat um, that jails pose. Um, do you think we'll learn anything from some of that sort of accidental experimentation in some ways? Yeah. Well, when we've seen this happen, what we've learned is that it doesn't typically doesn't translate into any noticeable rise in in crime or, or violence. And you know, this has been going on in New York for a long time now. So the key is not whether individuals are moving into and out of uh, the prison system or the jail system. The key is what institutions are there to help them reintegrate into communities and provide support as they try to rebuild their lives. In line with the name of this podcast, uh, if I'm a voter for whom violence and the images on the news right now is of foremost importance, what's the most important thing I should think about when I go to vote? Good question. So I think the most important thing to consider is a focus on investment. We have responded through a policy agenda focused on punishment, focused on abandoning communities and on punishment. Uh, and that has come in the form of aggressive policing and mass incarceration. That has to shift to an ag- agenda focused on investment. The resources that go to law enforcement have to be focused on on how Police departments can build trust and legitimacy communities. Okay, so that has to be the central focus. We have to think about sustained investment in a different set of actors and institutions, in community organizations that provide the foundation for public life in every neighborhood across the country. We now have a sufficient body of evidence to say with confidence that these community organizations can play a central role in confronting violence and are likely to be much more effective than police in regulating uh, violence in their own communities. But we've just never given these actors and institutions the same commitment and the same resources that we've given to law enforcement. So that really has to change and it has to start with a focus on investment. 
Pat, thank you. This has been a really interesting um, conversation and I really appreciate your time. Thanks for being here. Sure. Thanks for doing this, Elizabeth. I appreciate it. Go to vote.gov to register to vote in this year's election. You've been listening to Before the Ballot. This show is produced by me, Henry Barrett, with the assistance of Rose Huber. This podcast is intended to be informational only. It does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs.